Enlighten Me, the podcast everyone is talking about with your host, Julian. This is your host, Julian on Enlighten Me. Uh, before we get started today, if you can uh, go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel, just search Enlighten Me as well as Amazon, Spotify, Google, and, uh, and Apple Music. You can go ahead and search Enlighten Me on there. Five-star rating, 78 countries, and uh, we're still rolling. So, y'all, I'll give you all some more episodes, and uh, we got a good one for you. Uh, before we get started, I have my friend from actually a podcast guest. So if you have a podcast, go ahead and check that website out. Uh, but it's a plentiful amount of people willing to speak on your podcast. Capri, uh, how are you doing, sir? Excellent, excellent. Uh, thank you for uh, joining me on Enlighten Me. Perfect. This should be an yeah. interesting conversation. <laughs> that it should. Uh, you can just uh, briefly introduce yourself, sir. It'd be greatly appreciated. Yeah, so I'm a medical physician. I... Uh, I was born in India. I grew up in the United States in the urban core. I went to medical school in the US and I did surgical training up in Chicago. I went into anesthesia um, and then I returned back to St. Louis to practice. And I've been practicing interventional pain management for 15, 20 years. Um, and so I deal with a lot of complex issues associated with patients who have severe unrelenting pain. And in the process of dealing with that, um, I've been trying to figure out some common truths in, in medical care. Um, and I think we, I've, there's a few things that we've realized over this time period. Uh, as I've watched the U.S. population change very, very significantly. I was born in 1964, and between the 60s um, to when I arrived in the United States in, in the 70s to now, there's been a dramatic shift in the U.S. population. Our obesity rates are out of control. Uh, I tell you, probably 75 to 80% of people are overweight or obese. COVID certainly didn't help. Um, Half to two-thirds of those will end up becoming diabetic, and half of those will go on to having severe diabetes. And so it, it's become a major issue, and I, I'm, I've been advocating for my patients to try to help them regain their health. And that's why we're talking today is that, you know, what are the things that are associated with this epidemic of obesity and this epidemic of diabetes and and how do we handle it? Do you think, um, of course, the topic is obesity. Do you, do you think based upon the way the world, the technological incline on everything these days, like I guess I, I can shop for groceries without leaving the comfort of my own home. I can order Amazon and think goods from Amazon without leaving my home. Do you think that's accelerated the rate at which obesity is now prevalent? Well, I mean, Technology has facilitated our ability to consume mass quantities of stuff without having to expend any energy um, as in terms of our caloric energy expenditure. So sedentary activity certainly um, aggravates or accelerates um, obesity. But the underlying model is a little bit more complicated. It, it's not the simplistic model of well, if we just ate a little bit less food and if we just moved a little bit more, um, we wouldn't have obesity. That's not the model. That model's wrong. 
If you follow that model, your chances of weight loss is one chance, one out of 167 to one out of 212, less than a 1% chance of success. And that's the model that's supported by the American Nutrition Association. And that's the model that most physicians are taught. And it's just patently wrong. Um, the thing is that people don't realize that food that we consume is information. The, the, the stuff that's in the food provides data to your body to do a particular activity. And unfortunately, those particular activities are hormonal triggers. They're triggers for um, neurochemicals in your head. There's a whole host of secondary things that they cause. And those secondary things are much more potent than just the fact that you ate some sugar or that you were easily able to get some um, protein or, you know, it, it's not just the, the consumption of the food. It's the type of the food and what that food has done to the information um, that's being transmitted to the human body. Hmm. And you think people aren't based upon fast foods and things of that nature, of course, that's all sugars. Isn't that table, table sugar? Yeah, it, it, the sugar is certainly a big chunk of it. Um, what we have is we have a processed food addiction problem in the United States. And, and for that reason, um, we've corporatized food and we've massively corporatized it since 1971. Um, we've recommended that people consume vegetable oil starting in 1971. We recommended that people avoid uh, healthy oil like saturated fat from animal product in 1971. And when they replaced that component of their dietary intake, they naturally started to consume more carbohydrate. And because a lot of these carbohydrates are, receive a tremendous amount of federal subsidy, it's subsidized food, um, the producers of, of these subsidies, or the producers of the food that receive the subsidies, um, find it very effective and efficient to maximize their profit by giving the consumer what they want. The consumer wants cheap food and they, they want to have subsidized food. And so these corporations respond to that by producing cheap subsidized food. And that happens to have a ton of carbohydrates, a ton of vegetable oil, and that stuff is very, very shelf stable. Um, so, and I, and I use the word subsidized food, but just to get a, an understanding of what that means. So it was the Dust Bowl in the United States when Oklahoma and most of the Southwest was having massive issues. Um, we had food in the Northeast of the United States, but we didn't really have good food of any reliable quantity all the way down into the Dust Bowl, all the way out to California in the Southwest. And so the US government in their wisdom uh, to help the people in the Southwest wanted to trans transfer food from one place to the other. And they knew that the food that they had wasn't shelf stable. So they modified the food, they uh, dehydrated it, they created acellular carbohydrates from it, they condensed it, and they transferred food, uh, biscuits, um, re refined products. They knew that they needed things that were shelf stable and vegetable oil is shelf stable. So that was the origin of, of food subsidies, though. It was the ability to transfer large amounts of food, pay the farmers, and uh, get the food to places where you need it.
And that's also the kind of the origin of the food stamps. The reason why they did this wasn't because they were magnanimous and said, hey, you know, we just really love our people. The reason why they did this was because we had an issue in the United States. We didn't have enough well-qualified individuals who were not dying of starvation to fulfill our military needs. And so most people that would apply to go into the military were so sarcopenically wasted and they were so malnourished that most of them couldn't do that. And so what's back in the 30s, what's sarcopenically wasted is that? That means they they had they didn't have the muscle mass. Oh. Um, and so they had lost their muscle mass because we were having massive malnutrition. And people were were really, really thin and they were, you know, within 15, 30, 45 days of starvation. And so we were, we, we did this for uh, the right reason, which was we had starvation and we needed processed food to be transmitted. Uh, and we created subsidies and we got this food to our population. And we did it because we wanted to prevent a mass die off and we wanted to defend the country. Um, and so the original origin of all this was to provide for military support, to provide a healthy population for military enrollment. Uh, but then subsequently, other things happened. And the other things that happened that are of consequence, and since then, is that now we have people going into the military. And the number one reason for rejection for going into the military is not malnutrition because they don't have enough food. It's malnutrition because they're way overweight. Um, and so we've, we've, we've gone, we've swung malnutrition's. We had the malnutrition of not enough, and now we have the malnutrition of too much. I don't know if and you so saw that, the article. It's probably about a month ago. They increased our uh, our fat percent. You can be six percent over now. Yeah, and that's because we can't. We simply can't recruit enough qualified individuals. Six percent. Um, and so now what we're doing is we're saying, well, we don't have enough people to fill the armed forces. So now we got to change, and we gotta we gotta recruit people that we can, and hopefully we can mold something of them while they're in the military. And, and, and so I get that. I mean, you have to, you go to art, you, you go to guard, you go to, you go to war with the army that you have, not the one that you wish you had. Um, and mil, you know, the United States from a military standpoint, that's what, that's what maintains its ability everything. to control most of the world. Yep, everything, um, yeah. And so that's why we have the U S dollar as a reserve currency. It's because of our military strength, not because we're a production powerhouse. Um, so that's, you know, this, this process refined sugar, vegetable oil is the origin of our obesity. Um, but it's more than just obesity. What's happened is that only about 13% of the United States population is now metabolically healthy. And I would conjecture, and that was the study done before COVID. I would conjecture that it's probably realistically now six to 7% of the US population. The reason why is because the average weight gain per month of COVID lockdown was about two pounds. And if you get about 10 pounds up, 15 pounds up, you fall out of metabolic health and you start to put a lot of excessive forces on, on your body and you start to get a lot of biomechanical forces and you also get a lot of insulin resistance and your metabolism deteriorates quickly. Is that from your ideal weight? Because I know there's overweight. Which yep, is that's weight. from your ideal weight. 
And so once you get to overweight, you probably are metabolically dysfunctional. Um, And it's, it's very subtle at first because most people don't realize it. They just don't recognize it. And they think, oh, it's only 10 pounds, 15 pounds, and then it's 20 pounds and, and then it gets worse. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's that subtlety in the background that, that causes the mischief for the metabolism. Um, and so it's more than just how you look that I care. It's what your metabolism is doing. And so we, I look at those factors underlying it. I look at the omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratio. I look at the insulin resistance. I look at all of those other factors under, underneath it. And that's the true measure of, of health. It's not just the metric of this is my weight and this is my height. I don't really care about that. I mean, that's just an, that's an e- easy screening tool to look at somebody and go, well, I think that person's 150, 200 pounds overweight. But that's not the, the way. But for the other factors, that wouldn't mean much to me. It's the other factors that that mean a lot. And those are the ones that I really have to worry about. And the parallel is incredible because if you're massively overweight, your chances of being metabolically healthy are near zero. Um, And so those are the things that I'm I'm looking at. I was reading that it said uh, obesity is number two of one of the most preventable things you can uh, undergo because I think smoking is number one. BC was number two. I would conjecture that it's number one. Number the, one no. the cost of metabolic dysfunction secondary to obesity is $1.7 trillion a year. The cost of lung cancer from smoking um, is probably a couple hundred billion. So if you look at it from an economic cost, the cost of obesity is far greater and the cost okay. of metabolic dysfunction is far greater. And you have to include the cost of missing work. You have to include the cost of cognitive impairment. Um, and so it's not just my clothes don't fit. It's the neuroinflammation in the brain that changes the ability to process data and to have, to be cognitively sharp. Um, and part of that is because the ratio of fatty acids in the brain are wrong. So the vegetable oil is predominantly omega-6 and healthy fish oil is omega-3. And normally our ratios are, you know, historically as, as human beings, our ratios were three to one, four to one, omega-6 to three. And now they've gotten so far out of control that they're 24 to one. And so we have way too much vegetable oil. And the reason why that's relevant is that the way that the, the fat accumulates in our brain, it it gets it's the product that creates the insulation around our neurons it it helps create all of that insulation and so if that insulation is defective then the nerves that we have in our head don't fire like they're supposed to and that's just a gross oversimplification but that ratio we talked briefly with that about that earlier yeah and so if if that's an issue then you get cognitive impairment and so if you get cognitive impairment, that means that we have less ability to make good decisions. Um, and it reduces the intelligence of that individual while they've got that cognitive impairment. Um, and it reduces their reaction time and it, it or worsens their reaction time 
it reduces their creativity. Um, and there's all kinds of other things that happen, but it's that metabolic inflammation um, that I'm, I'm concerned about. And so that's, that's what I spend my time getting reversed. And it just so happens that when I fix all of those metabolic issues, the obesity goes away. What is, uh, I know you can't talk about some of your, your cases. Uh, can you bring up an instance that probably just I mean, our average all? patient comes in and, you know, when, when we deal with pain patients, uh, which is how I usually see them because they've been massively damaged. Um, you know, most of them are coming in on some very, pretty specific pain medication and on pretty significantly dosed pain medication. Um, most of them come in and, you know, they're, they're 100 pounds overweight, 75 pounds overweight. There's a, there's a shift that's happened in the brains of people because they, they, they look at each other going, well, that person looks like they're okay and they're overweight, so that must be the right weight. We've normalized being overweight. Oh and so specifically, if you look in communities of color, um, there's a normalization to being thick. And oh, yeah. that's a problem um, because that's not healthy. And <laughs> so use the cho best choice of words, thick. That is, that's right on. Yeah, well, it's, it's called being <laughs> thick, you know. And, and so there's that normalization. And we need to get away from that because if you normalize to your community norms, then you're going to get your community outcome. And the community outcome is a high morbidity, high mortality, and a long-term poverty. And so th these are all factors that, that intertwine. I recently did a, um, did a specific um, lecture on this for Low Carb USA um, and on the impact of dietary intake on the African-American community and how it had promoted an increased risk of um, essentially poor performance in school, increased risk of significant uh, interaction with law enforcement, increased risk of disenfranchisement from voting because of the interactions with law enforcement, oh, wow. uh, increased risk of loss of economic stability, um, and a whole host of other things. And, it, you know, when you get into communities of color, because they don't, you know, a lot of them are, they've, they've been redlined um, because it was, a, it was a governmental policy um, in the 1930s and 40s. Those communities have lost their wealth and they've also lost their mobility. Um, and so these things feed in on each other. And they're also the ones that are heavily dependent upon subsidized food. They're not the only ones. There's a bunch of rural communities that are exactly the same, and they happen to be mostly white communities. Well, would, you, um, would that kind of implement what I did? I did a uh, podcast with a nurse back then on COVID. She said something about food deserts in those type of communities. Yeah, that's what that's what you have. You have food deserts in both ends, both rural and urban. Um, in urban communities, you don't really have grocery stores because they've all been redlined out because you can't get funding from banks to build grocery stores in areas that are high risk. Um, and so that's, that's an issue. And you also, the number one area of wealth storage for Americans is their house. Well, if your community has been redlined, even though we've made changes uh, since HUD implemented changes, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 
we've made changes. Um, there's just a historical memory um, that people, you know, once an area becomes impoverished, it's unlikely that it's going to restore its economic viability in the near future. You almost have to gentrify it and bring back a whole different community and restructure that community in order to to reestablish the wealth. But the the problem is that the people that were there are pushed out and you bring in a whole new group of people. So the people that had lost the wealth are gone and they still don't have any wealth. And but the wealth but what was left is transferred. So it's an interesting um, it's an economic shift that that occurs. And the, yeah, it's definitely food deserts. I mean, if you're if you're a poor kid and you're you're living in in, in an urban community um, and you get home from school and you know it's dangerous on the street and there's violence and you don't have a grocery store to go to, you're going to grab the first thing that you can. And it's going to be from a convenience store and it's going to be processed oh, and yeah. it's going to be microwaved and it's going to be fried. And that's what you're going to eat. And if your mom or dad, you know, or whoever is working and you don't get to see them, you've lost that intellectual support and you know your brain is also already neuroinflamed and you're probably not going to be able to do your homework and so it's no wonder that communities that are in the urban core do so poorly as, as in terms of academic performance and so then you're going to be looking for the lottery to get you out of this mess and that's why people take daring chances uh, hoping that they can get out of the environment that they're in. That's about gambling too. Anything, I guess. Gambling, gentlemen, becoming yeah. a, a a sports figure, becoming a rap star. You know, I mean, something to get me out of this environment. And so people throw the dice, and so they no longer value a steady state of existence. They value the the dice the dice toss, and that's why you know gun violence is so prevalent because there's no there's no valuation of incremental life. Um, people are willing to throw, throw the dice because what do they got to lose? Well, yeah, that's just the environment they're raising. Cause if that's the status quo and that's the norm, the social norm, then that's all, you know? Yeah. Now um, I will say I have been in a couple, I am of course African-American and his endless Hispanic. So uh, Puerto Rican, Cuban, but um, I will say when I have been to, you know, somebody's house, they, they will pray over the food. And of course the food is just, is just plundered with seasonings and grease and things like that. And I get it, you know, balance and stuff like that, but my body, I've been working out for about 14 years now. I can't even eat that food anymore. It puts me straight to sleep, like a, two bites and I'm knocked out. And I think that is the norm. Like you were saying, the thick, the thick norm, uh, they pray, let it be nourishing to my body. And it's like, this isn't nourishment at all. This is this is complete opposite. This is where we are now. Yeah, it's plasticized. It's not real food. No, it's not. It's it's shelf stable. So to give you a perspective, just to understand what what that means, omega six is comes in industrial seed oil. Um, both omega six and omega three are rapidly damaged by ultraviolet right light both of them are damaged by time both of them are damaged by heat but the difference is 
omega-6, which is industrial seed oil, when it gets damaged, you can't tell. You can't tell that it's rancid. And in fact, human beings and, and rat models like the taste of rancid omega-6. But a rancid omega-3, you can tell. It smells like dead fish. You can't even be in the same room with a healthy omega-3 that's gone rancid. You know immediately. And so you won't eat the rancidity. And the rancidity or the oxidation um, is one of the problems. And the other thing is that when you go to the grocery store and you buy these vegetable oils, the industrial seed oil, they're all sitting under the fluorescent light in a clear bottle. They're being oxidized as you, as you, as you watch them in the grocery store. And the more often you use these vegetable oils, the more oxidized they get. And so a lot of people cook with vegetable oil and they reuse it two or three times. Well, it's nothing but garbage by then. And it's nothing but a bunch of oxidative products that are gonna cause a very significant issue for them long-term. You can't do that with an omega-3. If you oxidize an omega-3, you'll not be able to be in the same room with it. It's just disgusting. And so humans and, and rat models don't like oxidized omega-3 at all. We stay away from it. And so we'll eat fresh omega-3, which is really healthy for us, but we prefer and we'll eat crappy omega-6, which is actually really bad for us. What, um, what about the omega-3 uh, fish oil pills? That's, yeah, I usually recommend that people use krill oil instead of fish oil. Um, the reason why krill oil, I think, is a little bit better is that it has an astroxanthin in it, which is a terpene. And the terpene has some side, side benefits. And there's a lot of terpenes in marijuana and there's a lot of terpenes in naturally occurring uh, foods. It it's, a, it's a coloring, it's a redness to it. And that has a anti-inflammatory effect that's pretty substantive. Um, and so I, you know, I think that that's of more value. Now there's some conjecture in the literature that says, hey, um, all these people professing that omega-3 supplementation um, is a good thing, they're wrong because we've done these studies and it's not true. Well, the studies that have been done were done in quantities that were too low to be of any significance. So if I told you that, you know, if, if you did it in the right quantity, then, it's, then it shows the difference. And the, the problem is that most of the time they do the omega-3 studies and they use one gram. And the correct dose is four grams. It's 400% greater. And so if you use too low of a dose, it's not gonna show much. You have to use enough and you have to use it for enough time period. Um, it takes about six months of omega-3 supplementation to replace a lot of the, the, the fat that's in the myelin of your brain. It takes a couple months. It's not something that you're gonna take it today and you're gonna go, oh, I feel all better and I'm great at, by the weekend. No, it doesn't work like that. It's, this is a slow process. You got there slow because you ate vegetable oil your whole life and we have to get rid of that vegetable oil that's sitting in your brain slowly. It's gonna leach out as it gets replaced by healthier omega-3s. And so it takes time. And what kind of oil did you suggest again? Um, I usually, so oleic acid is what is in, um, is what is in olive oil. And so that, that's pretty good stuff. Um, but that's not a vegetable oil. 
even though it's called, you know, olive oil, it's not an industrial seed oil. Um, omega-6 is canola, mazola, margarine, um, soy, soy oil, soybean oil. Omega-3 is in natural food. And the supplementation that you would take would it's that's it, high concentrations are found in fish, salmon, yeah, salmon and a lot of the cold water fish. Um, but usually we don't in the United States eat enough fish. It's really hard to get enough fish. And so we usually recommend that people take supplements in order yeah, to get I, some. I even found out that salmon's not even really pink. Isn't it dyed? Um, it can be dyed. It depends on where it, it is pink. I mean, don't get me okay. wrong. It, it is definitely pink, but they make it pinker uh, by adding a dye to it. Okay. And and it's a dye that they the fish consumes. And so it, it's not necessarily the best thing on earth, but it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. Or I think slowly or so, slowly but surely everything that's nutrient may be taken away. Right. What about organic? Because now that we're, that term is thrown around by businesses so so easily now. I think that the term organic is a good term. Um, I I don't, you know, organic is technically no antibiotics um, and raised without, you know, without pesticide or herbicide. Um, and I think that that's a good thing. But I think that even some stuff that's not organic is pretty good too. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily look at the term organic, although that's going to be a, it, it's going to be a good term. Yes. Um, I usually look for stuff that's safely produced and green, you know, produced in, in a way that it's, it's, it's appropriate for the animal. Um, and it's appropriate that I'm not getting residue of antibiotics and I'm not getting residue of, of hormones. I'm not getting residue in my body. Um, it's almost impossible to get purely organic in the United States right now. Um, our, our food supply is pretty contaminated. And so it's, it's the downstream risk of a lot of stuff that we just don't realize. You, um, you I'll give you an example. So people uh, talk quick about- Quick question, quick yeah. question. Do you think, because Germany and European nations they won't take certain food from America because they want it healthier. So what, yeah. what about that? Yeah, I mean, that's why they don't have as bad of a diabetes rate as we do. <laughs> um, that's why they don't have as many organophosphates and quaternary amines that they, that they get, that we get. But if they can um, produce that much and ship it to Europe, why can't they do it here in the States? That's my only question. It's, well, we can, but the subsidies aren't there for it. And the subsidies are for the cheaper stuff and they're for the processed stuff and so if you're trying to produce stuff for mass consumption then you're going to have you, you may not be producing organically um and i'm not too worried about organic production i'm more worried about um you know was was the animal that i'm going to consume treated humanely did it ha live a good life um, that messes is, with the, the food itself yeah i mean because i want to make sure that you know if, if i'm going to be a consumer of of items, I give those items dignity and respect. And at the same time, I don't want to consume a bunch of garbage. I don't want a bunch of glyphosate from Roundup in my body. And I don't want to have heavy metals. And I don't want to have 
uh, xenoestrogens. And, you know, I, I, I want to avoid certain compounds so I can maintain some degree of health. Okay. Recognizing that we're in a, in a processed uh, state, we're in a hyper-processed state. Um, and so, you know, still having some food is better than having no food. Yeah, um, and and so I'm not I don't get too worked up about it, um, but I still want to make sure that I'm not eating a bunch of garbage. So if I stay away from most processed food, I can stay away from most garbage. If I eat real food, um, then I don't have any issues. Oh, I said it right on the head. I'm always preaching about real food. But uh, what were you about to say before I uh, intervene? Um, yeah, I don't recall. So <laughs> I think you're about to, uh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know either. Um, okay. So what about obesity in kids? Of course, if the parents are usually obese, uh, it does trickle down to the kids themselves. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's a combination factor. I mean, our, it used to be that we never heard of type two diabetes in children. Type two diabetes is, uh, Diabetes typically is associated with obesity, um, and it's because you're producing too much insulin, and it's because you are consuming too much carbohydrate. We never did. We didn't have that in children. We had type one diabetes, which is probably an autoimmune issue. It is probably virally triggered, and that's the origin of the Nobel Prize for insulin production. It was really for type one diabetes. Um, we didn't have type 2 diabetes in children until last 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, it was it's relatively new in human history. We didn't have a situation where we had such corpulent kids, and and now we do, because most most kids have three, four, sometimes five or six sugar sweetened beverages a day, and they're getting a huge fructose load, and they're getting fatty liver as young children. Those are the ones that are going to have massive issues as they grow up because, you know, they, there are, there are already, their bodies have already aged by 20, 30 years by the time that they're six. That is crazy. Yes, and I those are it. the ones. I see it a lot. Yeah. And those are the ones that are going to be cognitively impaired. And those are the ones that as a society, we may have given, you know, that we may have given them subsidized food or cheap. But those are the ones that are going to cost society a ton. And so, you know, it's we're, we're ignoring the downstream effect from a subsidy. You know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect. It's an unintended consequence that, you know, you gave a little bit of a subsidy here, but 30 years later, you're doing a, a kidney transplant and you're doing a, a liver transplant. And, you know, you're, you're doing a million dollars of, of health care but you got your food a little bit cheaper when you were five. That's, that is wild. From about, about his perspective, that is wild. And, yeah. I, and again, I'm, I'm the one that uh, points things out. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get canceled. But the whole uh, body shaming thing, or bo was it body positivity? Where, you know, well, yeah, and so <laughs> that's why I tell people it's not, you know, I don't, I, I don't judge people by their body. It just happens no, to be a rapid no. screen. Yeah. But you know, that's not what we should be doing. It should be purely on their metabolism because I have skinny people. I have people that are so skinny and they're usually of East Asian de descent. They're coming into me and they're skinny, 
but they're also sarcopenically wasted. They've lost their muscle mass and their metabolism is completely shot. And they're just as bad metabolically as this really, really overweight people. And they both have dietary problems. It just so happens that they handle it differently. And, and it just so happens that you know, they, their insulin levels are also out of control uh, and they're also insulin resistant and they also have high markers of, of metabolic inflammation with high HSCRP and they also have abnormal omega-6 to 3. So it's, it's not just the appearance of the weight. Certainly that's what it is for most people. Uh, I would tell you it's probably true for 80-90%, but there's a whole other population that's metabolically uh, deficient and we call them skinny fat. They have the metabolism of somebody who's massively overweight, but they've lost all their muscle mass and they're skinny. And that's just yeah. as dangerous. It's, it's wild times. And when, what made you get into this field? Like what, just to make a change? No, it was, um, so I was trying to understand my patients. So my patients, you know, here I am treating these patients with chronic severe pain. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to make them better. I'm doing procedures to help them and they get better. But then they come back and their pain comes back. And so it was troubling to me that there wasn't a large, a significant durability in the treatment. And it always bothered me that their symptoms would come back. So I was constantly trying to figure out, well, why is the symptom coming back? Why, why is this? And so what's the underlying issue here? And then as I was going through it, I was like, you know, I can't understand this. These people don't have that much money. I'm in the urban core. But how is it that they're so overweight? Because isn't being overweight a marker of wealth? Well, it was until the, you know, until the Industrial Revolution. Um, because the really wealthy people were gluttonous and they were overweight. Um, and the poor people worked out in the fields and worked all day and didn't have enough food and they were skinny. Well, now we flipped the, the, the text and now the really wealthy people have figured out what to eat and how to die, how to use their appropriate dietary intake and exercise. And the people with less money are stuck eating subsidized food, which is totally unhealthy for them. And now our, our, our heaviest people and our most metabolically deficient are the poor. And it's, it's flipped, it's flipped scripts. Gout was unheard of in poor people. Gout was a disease of the wealthy. And gout is basically excessive uric acid from too much insulin um, sitting in your joints. Gout was a disease of gluttony. And now gout is a disease of gluttony, but in the poor because they're eating the wrong stuff. So when we wrap this up, what, what can you suggest people at home? What, what could they possibly do for a daily change or a weekly change? Even a monthly well, I mean, change? Or... It's, it's not, this is not something that, um, it's not something that's over that, time. Yeah. Well, it, time. It, it, it's not something you're not going to do something today to make a change for tomorrow. Well, no, you're, no. you're going to have to do something every day to make a change for the rest of your life. And so you don't, you know, one of the things is um, people say, well, I, it's like a light switch. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to diet on Monday. Yeah. And to Monday, Monday I'm make this change. No, yeah, it doesn't Monday work wears. like that. Um, you got there over time. You're going to go. It's going to go away over time. 
Um, and the other thing is don't beat yourself up over it. I mean, that's, you know, psychologically people go, well, I'm not, I'm not skinny yet. It's been two weeks. Well, oh, God. It, it took you years. And so <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, we have some really good resources on, on dietary intake and they're free. I mean, there's no charge for it. Um, if you go to www.reversediabetes.md, um, so there's not.com it's www.reversediabetes.md or, you know, you, you go to one of our other websites, uh, painmd.tv. We've got all the dietary guidance right there. It's free. Our, all of our protocols are there. And they go through it. The number one thing, the easiest thing is get away from vegetable oil. The number two thing is get away from sugars. If you do th those two things, that's 80% of the battle. Um, there's other factors, obviously. There's the factor of moving enough so that you deplete some glycogen out of your liver. There's the factor of getting adequate sleep. Because if you don't get adequate sleep, you're not going to you're not going to be even getting close to healthy weight. Is it still seven to eight hours of sleep? Right yeah, now. I mean, and you know I, know, I used to pride myself on getting by with four and a half, five hours of sleep. What? No, what? And, and and that that's fine, um, but that's not a healthy thing to do. And the thing is, one of the other factors is to have adequate sleep hygiene. So if you're watching TV before bed, your brain thinks it's already asleep. And so it's that blue light and then all of the visual clues, your brain thinks you're already asleep. You don't realize it, but, you're, but your brain thinks it's asleep, but you're not getting any restful sleep. So it's seven or eight hours of restful sleep. Yeah, um, That's yeah. ideal. And that, that requires, light. yeah, no, no background lights, a uh, little bit of background noise. Um, no lights for at all. I mean, I prefer a black room, black, blacked out room. Um, something in the background that, that hums so that your, your brain does not become hyper alert every time it hears a creak or a noise. Um, colder temperature to induce sleep. And then naked too, aren't you? Well, I mean, just cold temperature. You can sleep oh. naked if it makes you cooler, but it's the, the purpose is to, is to drop your, your temperature. As you drop your temperature down, you induce sleep better. Um, and so you can induce that by taking a hot shower first and then getting in bed and you instantaneously will start to cool. And that induced cooling will trigger sleep. Um, there's all kinds of other ways to do it, but taking sleep aids like the benzodiazepines um, and a lot of the sleep drugs, that's not really healthy um, because a lot of them don't actually give you restorative sleep. They just make you forget that you didn't sleep. They cause amnesia. What the hell? And so a lot of people end up on these drugs and they think, well, at least I'm sleeping. No, you're not. You, you're just amnestic. If you figured out what you were actually doing and you did a video, you'd realize you weren't <laughs> sleeping. Um, and so, the the, so they're flopping around and sometimes they're snacking and they're forgetting that they snacked until they wake up in the morning with Cheetos all over them. Um, and so those are factors that, that are, you know, that you have to address. And then th those are just the simple things. And we have, we have protocols on how to sleep on, you oh, know, yeah. supplements on, on what to do. And they're all on my videos and they're all for free. So there's nothing you're going to pay me. It's, it's already there. 
I've been doing this for a long time and I'm trying to get the communities that I'm in to align correctly. Um, and a lot of it is just simply getting away from the hyper-processed food. Nobody needs it. Um, and that means that they should go to real food. Real food means that, you know, I, I don't want you eating bread because most of it in the United States is fake. Most of it's just a modified fructose. Um, most of the time, the stuff that we get in the cans and in the boxes um, is just hyper-processed. It's not real food. It's lost all of its nutritional value. And it's it's been depleted of nutrition. It's calorically dense, but nutritionally deficient. Are you on YouTube at all speaking? Any um, yeah, we've got, I've got a bunch of stuff on there. And then... Um, is it just your name or? Yeah, just look up my name, uh, Gurpreet Pada, P-A-D-D-A. I think that that's an easy way. Also, if you look up, if people really have a, a deep desire to learn a lot, go on low carb. They're, they're, one, they're an amazing source of information, lowcarb.usa. Um, they're an amazing, amazing source of information. Um, and then, you know, just go to our website. We can point you from there and you can even reach out to us through an email on that and answer questions all the time. So it's not hard to, to get the information and to download those protocols. They're free. You're not going to have to pay anything. Uh, and we don't spam you. We, we don't send you emails. <laughs> so we Sign just, if, if somebody has a question, we answer it and we don't spam people because it's not worth our time to, to spam. Um, but this intermix between our dietary um, intake and our society as a whole, um, it's created like an interesting collision. It's really affected uh, the, the capital structure of the United States. And it, it's going to have some very significant secondary unintended side effects that we really have to get control of. Um, it, it's going to be a major factor for us. And it's, it's something that we need to get better control of. Hopefully this, this podcast will at least help that one, one person. That's always yep. my goal is at least reach one person. And if it does more, you know, great. Even better. Even better. I, I, I appreciate it. I honestly do appreciate the, the wealth of knowledge and plethora of knowledge that you were able to bestow on here. I learned a lot. I ain't gonna, I'm not going to even lie. Cool. But uh, I know we possibly can probably get up for what, two more or one more? I think we're going to talk about AI maybe. Your, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's I, dope. I, love, um, I love technology. And so it's something that we should probably talk about, especially as it relates to the metaverse and how... Um, how it's going to impact our society. It, it, it's a big factor. We're conditioning our society with our metabolism um, to have metabolic inflammation. And then that is conditioning us to join the metaverse because you don't have to have muscles to be in the metaverse. You don't have to have anything. And so it's we're also having a historic population decline and we're having a historic impotence problem and we're all in silos individually. And so that's, the, that's where artificial intelligence comes in with anthropomorphization of, of chatbots and how the chatbots will interact with us. They're already doing those studies now. And so that, that's gonna be a long-term issue that we need to get ahead of. That's gonna be wild. Yep. That's yeah, let's, be wild. let's catch up, definitely. 
I appreciate it again. Uh, thank you again for joining uh, me on uh, <laughs> Enlighten Me Can't Talk. Thank you again, and uh, take care. All right, thank you. Very well.